All right. Good morning, noon, and night, everyone, wherever and whenever you are listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. This is the June 28th, 2017 edition. I want to thank everybody for listening. If you're interested, please check out my Patreon account. Try to try to help out, uh, up the production value, and keep The Shift going here at patreon.com backslash The Shift. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty or join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty. So uh, if you like what you're listening to, then uh, let's make the community larger and keep the conversation going. All right. Well, my guest for today is Will Parrish. Will Parrish is an award-winning investigative journalist. He has been living and working in Northern California for most of his life, focusing on environmental and military issues. He seeks to challenge conventional wisdom, expose wrongdoing by the wielders of political and institutional power, and tell stories of people struggling for environmental and social justice. Will's work has been showcased locally in Northern California in the East Bay Express and North Bay Bohemian, as well as featured in well-known news outlets such as Alternate, Counterpunch, Truth Out, and recently in a four-part series soon to be uh, expanded upon with The Intercept entitled Tiger Swan Tactics. Uh, about what was going on at Standing Rock. Hey, Will, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. Just uh, finished part five of that series, and uh, talking to you is the first thing I'm I'm doing after completing that draft, so thanks for having me on. Good. Yeah, I've been following your work for a number of years since we're both here in Northern California, and uh, I was really happy to see that you've managed to kind of go national or even international with The Intercept. What a, what a great news organization that uh, Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill have going on there. So uh, it was nice to see somebody from our area uh, kind of starting to hit the big time there. So happy for you for that. Thank I, you. I just wanted to start off. Well, why don't we talk a little bit, because I know um, about your activism as well and some of the stuff that was going on um, with the Willits Bypass here locally. Uh, I just wanted to start off with a conversation about, well, I mean, where you are as an investigative journalist, but also, um, you know, this concept of activist journalism, because so many people, I think, these days want to shy away from that. They're trying to be very objective. Um, But I think that your work is very politically motivated, which I appreciate. Um, So I kind of wanted to get into you know where where you are on that um maybe give a little bit of the story about about what was going on with the Willits bypass it was such a a local issue um and then um you know just expand on the kind of journalism that you're doing right now sure well the the Trump administration's kind of aggressive assault against uh journalism has really opened up that conversation right i mean i was i just happened to be browsing Politico of all things yesterday and there, you know, there was an article that was among the most read articles of the day entitled something like, um, you know, neutral, the idea of neutrality in journalism is dead. Good riddance, you know, which this is appearing at Politico. So it's kind of, kind of like, clearly this is something that is alive in the mainstream media right now. So, you know, I've, I've always seen, my journalism as an extension of my political beliefs and political goals and, and vice versa. You know, I, I work for various political goals through means other than journalism, or at least I have throughout uh, pretty much my entire adult life. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I believe in advocacy journalism and I, I believe that the idea of neutrality is, so often used as a mask to actually serve powerful interests. Um, I think the idea of professional objective journalism sort of came about, uh, you know, in, in correspondence with the rise of corporate journalism uh, in the United States. So, you know, I've, I've always seen journalism as a political tool. Uh, I think that it inherently is a political tool, whether that's recognized or not. Uh, so, you know, I, I have no qualms around doing advocacy journalism. You know, at various times in, in my life, I've, you know, been more active doing journalism. At various times, I've done things like climb, you know, trees and, and wick drain stitchers and, <laughs> and written about those experiences. Um, and, you know, uh, at this point, I'm more focused on journalism and reporting. Mm-hmm. I think that... Yeah, you know, the Intercept is a great outlet for for what I've done because 
Yeah, more than anyone, I think Glenn Greenwald, one of the founders of The Intercept, has advanced a certain kind of ag- advocacy journalism in recent years. So, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a good place to focus on journalism right now, but definitely, you know, I'm proud of other things I've done. I, I don't shy away from having done things like, you know, taken on the Wilkes Bypass and gotten arrested for it and things like that. Right. I mean... You know, they've called uh, journalists in the past the, the fourth estate, meaning that it's the function in a, in a democratic society that we have journalists that are actually out there fighting corruption. You know, and if all you're doing, I really like what you said about uh, sort of sort of neutral or objective journalism being a, an excuse put out by by powerful interests or corporate uh, interests uh, as a way of saying uh, as, as a way of justifying their position um, and, and sort of pushing aside uh, those who are seeking to just expose the corruption within the system. I mean, this is a serious issue. So, I mean, let's talk about, like, uh, it's things have gotten so cloudy in the last six months with Donald Trump. I mean, he has come out in some ways, you know, he's come out against, is he against journalism or against the mainstream media? We've had this whole Russian thing happening. Uh, and now we've had a couple of journalists at CNN who have had to resign over pushing this this uh, Russia situation for the ratings instead of you know a- actually seeking out the truth, we've had this meme that's coming out about fake news, um, which I have a tendency to think is is a way of drowning out dissident voices. Sometimes um, there's just a fine line. I mean, as an independent journalist, you know, where do you what are your feelings surrounding all of this? Like this whole atmosphere that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean the the Russia thing has I think had an interesting effect just in my own little realm of journalism, which you know is obviously uh, you know sort of a, a very small uh, slice of, of journalism, um, mm-hmm. reporting for alternative news outlets and, and and publications like Intercept. I mean, I mean the Russia narrative has been sort of like the meta narrative that you know, uh, journalists seem to be encouraged to tie everything into as much as possible lately and and people who do that to some degree you know they get more readership they get more attention there's a big incentive to play into to narratives like that and and you know it's not something that's new per se i mean um anytime that there's a big boogeyman kind of national enemy that gets defined in people's minds there's a huge incentive for journalists to to tie their stories into that that larger narrative and and that makes it harder for stories you know that don't fit that narrative to get attention or or to be taken seriously uh, so you know i i would say for example in my own experience um trying to push these stories out about uh dapple private security scenarios um being a part of these massive police operations against Political protesters, I, I think, has big implications for people's First Amendment rights. It has big implications for the kind of policing that happens in the United States. And you know, this and uh, you know, I think the stories have gotten a lot of attention. But um, and maybe I'm biased, you know, because I, I happen to be working on them. But I think it's an important story, and I think it is one example of of many of major stories that are happening that maybe don't get the attention they deserve because. They don't fit that bigger narrative that is prevalent in the corporate press, you know. And and if you know, I don't know how you feel about the Russia thing and the you know the actual substance to the allegations against Trump. I, I think there's probably something there, uh, and there's there's interesting things that merit reporting. But it's it's become a such an obsession, I think, um, of so many people. And, you, you know, in a situation where a story is getting so much play, I think it always behooves people to, you know, to examine what interest that story is serving. Um, right. And, you know, there's various interests that are being served by that story. I think that there's um, a lot of uncritical acceptance of, you know, the intelligence uh, community, as it's called, that are pushing that story. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that I would like to see a lot more people questioning as these stories come out, um, you know, and I'm saying that as someone who 
is you know very strongly anti-Trump, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, I, I almost find it interesting um, because I don't like to come across as a Trump supporter either. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I've found that exactly what you're talking about—the Russian narrative—is starting to take. Um, it's starting to to be almost a diversion from other maybe more important issues, and. Um, it is taking the uh, intel, which I, you know, I don't. I, I think all Americans should have a healthy distrust of uh, of the intelligence agencies, the NSA, the CIA. I mean, why are we believing these guys? It could just be as much uh, American propaganda as Russian propaganda, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, when these intelligence agencies are just yeah. telling you what to do, and then you have reporters, corporate from the corporate media, unquestioningly reporting this stuff without getting any kind of you know, without doing any kind of investigative journalism, really, just quoting these official government narratives as if they're fact. I don't know that that's really doing the job. So, um, sure. you know, I guess maybe just um, if you could say a few more words about the corporate press uh, in that it is, I think it is heavily influenced. It's heavily influenced by getting ratings. It's heavily influenced by the commercialism, the the fact that it's sponsored by these corporate commercials. Um and is it really doing the same kind of a job that someone like you as an independent journalist can do? Right. Well, as you're alluding to, these are big businesses. Um, their business model is basically to sell viewers or readers to their advertisers because they're making most of their money through advertising. You know, it's a profit-oriented model. And so if there is a situation such as with Russia where people are avidly consuming that story way, you know, that, that model feeds in, you know, that model just encourages the reporters who are reporting these stories, just feed more and more of that narrative to, to this audience that they're then selling back to their advertisers and, and bumping up their profits. And, you know, of course a big crisis, I think uh, a moment that last year was when uh, I believe it was the president of NBC News or an owner of NBC News said that uh, talked about how Trump's presence he has been so great for ratings and you know more right. just advocating for more Trump more Trump more Trump you know which clearly you have this uh, dangerous you know fascist style autocratic campaign happening you know the Trump campaign and, and you have one of the major news outlets in the United States talking about how great that is for business. So, you know, pointing to a, you know, sort of dangerous convergence of the profit motives of the corporate press and a dangerous political movement uh, that, you know, threatens the, the liberties of, of people in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I heard that uh, the corporate press made a hundred million dollars more this election cycle than than any other election cycle in history. Because even though it was almost entirely bad press about Trump, he got he got so such high ratings that they kept feeding him. And then I think the the statistic actually was he got a billion dollars. His campaign got a billion dollars worth of free press from the corporate media just because even though it was bad press, you know they say there's no such thing as bad press. He got all the name recognition in the world. Uh, for right. free, and and then you know the the corporate news agencies got a hundred million dollars for it. So um, it's not a very functional right. democracy when you look at it from from that perspective. Right, and yeah, I think a lot of the things that we're talking about, more people are realizing the press has lost a lot of credibility. I think that Trump's presidency is a reflection of that. You know, the fact that he feels. Like he, uh, winning political strategy is to campaign against the media. You know, in the United Kingdom, it was a big deal that Jeremy Corbyn's campaign did so well, despite having the entire media lined up against him. From you know, and he, you know, he's a coming from a different place politically completely than Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. you know, across the spectrum, I think that there's a total loss of credibility right now. Um, that you know has historic implications, and it's it'll be interesting to see where it goes. For sure. I mean, I think the important thing, actually, just sitting here thinking about it, is that the the consuming public has to become more critical. There are, you know, which is one of the reasons why, and I'm so glad that you decided to be on the program, because 
you know, trying to showcase more independent journalists. And then as you're consuming, you know, people who are listening to this, please, as you're consuming the, the mass of information that's out there on the Internet, you just have to have a critical eye. But you can pick out the, the good from the bad, you know, follow a few sources, make sure that people are doing good work. But I mean, why don't you actually attest, you know, say a little something about that? I mean, do, do you find, say, fake news sources or are you seeing a lot of, uh, you know, swag out on the Internet that's really not worth it? Or how do you discern between good journalism and bad journalism that's out there right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, I sort of just put my head down and focus on my own work and, you know, right. uh, try to read good sources and uh, – there is a lot of great journalism on the internet. Um, obviously there's a lot of crap and, you know, right. I mean, my, my own approach is to try to ignore things that I don't find to be worth my time and energy. Uh, that's just, you know, how I personally approach it. I think that, um, you know, clearly there, there is a lot of bad information, um, on the internet. And in a sense, I think that, the corporate media has promoted that idea and in doing that sort of, you know, promoted uncritical acceptance of their own reporting. And, you know, just as often, I think that there's a problem with really bad reporting in the corporate media, you know, like I, I came of age politically, uh, you know, in a sense as the Iraq war was gearing up in 2002, 2003, Sure. And, you know, that, that's sort of the earliest time I remember really critically analyzing media coverage, like with a lot of scrutiny. And, and, you know, there's so many completely ridiculous fake news, if you will, stories about, you know, Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. There's a big propaganda campaign that drove American public opinion about Iraq completely off the spectrum. And the rest of the world was looking at the United States wondering, you know, what the, what the hell is going on with people in the United States that they're believing that Iraq is this big security threat. Even Kuwait, which was invaded by Iraq in 1990, did not see Iraq as a security threat. Uh, and the U.S. <laughs> did, and that was because of horrible media coverage yeah. of, of that story. So, you know, this is a longstanding issue. Um, and I think that, you know, the Internet has a lot of pros and cons and you know one one thing that it does do is it affords people like me more of an opportunity to to get our stories out without you know the gatekeepers of the corporate press preventing those stories from getting out at the same time you know there's a lot more sort of uh tribalism of a sort where people are just consuming stories that confirm their existing biases you have a lot of stories that are you know, totally unvetted and and not um, and not fact checked or, or or purposely false. So, right. You know, well, I mean, one thing that in in our reporting just on this series on Tiger Swan and the police operation in North Dakota found was that uh, Tiger Swan has a, a fake news operation going on on the internet where they create fake Facebook pages, they feed in they they feed stories to fake websites. By fake websites, I mean, you know, they're, they're posing as news outlets, but they're actually uh, corporate propaganda for this oil corporation. Right. Um, and, you know, there's you would have to, you know, because it's online, um, you, would, you know, it's clearly suspicious material, but you would have to do a lot of digging, as we've done, to actually figure out that it is Tiger Swan putting these stories out there. So, you know, uh, these these things are more and more a part of corporate propaganda strategies and government propaganda strategies. I feel so, you know, I feel like the internet has a very complicated impact on, on people's ability to consume accurate news or news with public value. Um, it's, you know, it's just a big mixed bag. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great segue into this uh, intercept article then. Um, what got you involved with the intercept? How did you, did you get your hands on, on these documents? So you, you got, you got these leaked documents from, uh, a, a con somebody who worked for Tiger Swan. Did those go through the intercept and then get to you or did you get your hands on them? How did you end up getting this, this primary information? Well, this, this project started for me essentially because I paid a lot of attention to the Standing Rock story. I was sort of involved in 
writing about Standing Rock and also uh, went Standing Rock, did some support for people from Mendocino County up there. Hello, Mendo, uh, who went yeah. out to Standing Rock. And <clears throat> how long were you there? Uh, I was there for about nine days in November. Uh, it was the period where there was the big um, incident on the backwater bridge where people with water hoses amidst uh, freezing or sub-freezing temperatures. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I got to see a lot of the police operation firsthand. Uh, it clearly seemed to me to be a counterinsurgency operation that had a lot of layers to it that were sort of hard to, hard to understand fully at the time. Uh, there's clearly a lot going on behind the scenes. I mean, I think everyone recognized that about this police operation, and we knew that private security were involved. Um, different people knew more than, than I did, obviously, about that at the time. And, you know, I, I just started working on a story that was originally going to be in The Nation, actually, which I, you know, have had established a relationship with uh, about the federal prosecutions of Standing Rock protesters that are ongoing. And I, I just started by filing a lot of records requests and doing reporting and interviews. One thing led to another. I ended up with a lot of documents through records requests. <clears throat> the story with The Nation never materialized. Uh, and I approached The Intercept and it turned out that, uh, you know, they had material that helped confirm things I was looking at. I had material that helped confirm things they were looking at. And so we, we create a partnership and have been publishing the, you know, the material we've compiled ever since and, and compiling new material. And, uh, at this point we have, I think eight stories plans in this series. Nice. And you've published four of those so far. Who, uh, that's right. Can you talk about uh, who you've partnered with? You've got two other co-authors on the story. Right. I'm co-authoring the stories with Aline Brown and Alice Sperry, who are uh, Intercept reporters. They're on the staff. Um, Aline's done a lot of great work, I think, paving the way for the series through reporting on Standing Rock and reporting on the climate justice movement for The Intercept. She was actually a, a researcher for Naomi Klein's book, uh, This Changes Everything, about climate change. So that's, you know, that's a little Neat. bit of her background. Aliche has done a lot of criminal justice report times and, and other publications. So, you know, it's been a wonderful experience working in a team on this. And, um, yeah, it's, I'm excited to, to see where it goes. You know, it's, it's been a great, it's been great. <laughs> So what do you think was, uh, I don't know, I want to say the most shocking or the most eye-opening piece of information that you got? What you ended up with, at least what you quote extensively, are these um, these actual documents from Tiger Swan that are um, kind of uh, uh, reiterating what they were going through, what they were doing, tactical, um, tactical decision-making uh, reports right. that were day-to-day, -day, uh, and you got... Uh, your hands on a few of these or a couple months worth of, of exactly what was going on there. Um, so as you were going through them, you know, what was the first thing that kind of struck you as, as to the attitude of, of this private contractor that was working with government agencies uh, fighting the, these protesters? Well, it struck me the most is that they saw the standing rock resistance as a religiously driven insurgency similar, you know, with a similar lens to how, uh, you know, so-called jihadist fighters in, in military battlefields are viewed by the U S military. You know, these are former special forces operatives in a lot of cases, you know, that's who founded tiger swan and runs tiger swan on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's a striking example of the, the war on terrorism coming home to U S soil in, in the sense of, the kinds of policing and security operations that happen in military battlefields actually, you know, being utilized on U.S. soil. And, you know, I think it's a model that has existed in various parts of the world and, you know, we're maybe not as familiar with in the U.S., but in, in so many cases in, in the global south, in uh, countries that have resources that corporations are trying to obtain, uh, you have these partnerships of private security and, and police where, you know, the police don't really have, um, 
full, you know, they aren't fully in control of the operation. The, the private security sort of operates above the law. And I think that, you know, when you have companies like Tiger Swan that are used to operating in that environment, uh, operating on U.S. soil, it, it's it's very revealing, you know, very dangerous. Um, there, there were there certainly some incidents where it would have been very possible for people to be killed. And, you know, at Standing Rock, like in October, there was an incident where a private security operative came into a camp, you know, the camps amid this police raid that was happening with a AR-15 um, got run off the road by protesters as he was barreling, you know, in his truck toward one of the camps, got out brandishing his gun, aimed it at people. Um, it was loaded. It was, uh, you know, it, it, people could have easily died in that situation, you know, and that was a private security operative. Clearly, um, this individual had been fed a lot of information about these protesters being dangerous terrorists and acted accordingly in the situation. So, you know, that's just an example of, I think, what's dangerous about that. You know, but basically, um, Tiger Swan was a part of a very sophisticated, multi-layered operation. I think we're, you know, still in the process of making sense of everything that happens. Uh, what is, you know, what we're going to be reporting on in the next little while is how uh, this relationship between private security and domestic security agencies like the FBI um, have worked out in federal prosecutions of activists. Actually, the uh, the first prosecution of a political dissenter occurred in the Trump administration uh, on the after Donald Trump inauguration was a, uh, a water protector in North Dakota uh, named Michael Marcus. He's facing over 10 years in prison. Um, you know, the FBI investigated him. You know, you've got the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting him. And the evidence in his case, according to the court documents I've looked at, mainly came from the private security uh, operations helicopters that were overflying uh, the protest sites at the time that he allegedly, you know, did the things that he's accused of. And so you have, you know, just it's from top to bottom, this merger of uh, private interests funded by an oil corporation, you know, this private security operation and public law enforcement. And, you know, to see that playing out in federal prosecutions being brought by the Trump administration, I think is is something that's worth paying attention to, you know, for everybody, because um, the question, you know, the question I think that comes out of this series is, to what degree is this a model for for the future, uh, and to what sure. extent will will these agencies and corporations learn from this and apply it in other situations? Well, it was interesting. I was going to bring up. I was doing some research for another interview, and uh, I saw uh, uh, an interview with uh, ex Green Party presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney. One of the things that she was explaining was that whenever they do something to the African American community, then you can be sure they're going to be bringing it to everybody later on down the line. And it just clicked that it reminded me that this is exactly what's going on here uh, at Standing Rock is they have this indigenous population. They're rolling out this new public-private fusion uh, with these defense contractors from the war on terror, and they're applying it to you know the Native American community at Standing Rock. Um, but it seems inevitable that this is basically a beta testing something that's just going to become more and more popular for anybody that has any dissenting political beliefs in the future. They're going to be able to roll this kind of stuff out, and they're going to have this history and this knowledge of how to do it, which they learned in Iraq, just like you're saying. I mean, they, they basically come to Standing Rock and impose this counterinsurgency, anti-terrorism uh, protocol on top of something that's completely different, that's a non-violent political protest domestically. So I think that should be frightening to everyone. Yeah, and, and in looking at that issue you raised of of uh, sort of canaries in the coal mine and, and these police operations targeting uh, people of color, it, you know, I recently was thinking about where else has this model happened Previously, and the you know the closest parallel I think was actually uh, post-hurricane 
New Orleans in 2005 in a sense where sure. you had Blackwater mercenaries roaming the streets, uh, working with police to, you know, for the stated purpose of clamping down on riots and looting, following this, following in this hurricane, but, you know, in these predominantly um, African-American areas in New Orleans, uh, they were able to implement this public-private fusion model of security that, uh, you know, was sort of the original basis for uh, Jeremy Scahill's work on Blackwater, actually. You know, he was he reported on Blackwater's presence in New Orleans after the, after the hurricane. Um, so, you know, to me, that's actually probably the closest model to what we saw. Uh, and just in terms of the role of private security mm-hmm. being so central to a policing operation in the United States, you know, it's you know the the North Dakota governor declared a state of emergency. Um, the National Guard was a part of this uh, operation, and then you have this you know this private mercenary corporation coming in and uh, taking part in every facet of of this police operation. And you know the fact that, as you said, people of color are the targets mainly um, definitely fits in a historical pattern. Right. Maybe you could talk for a second about the Pinkertons. I know you brought them up just to put this in a historical con- context. There has been a history of this kind of corporate government fusion. I mean, this is what we're seeing on all levels in the United States, actually. Um, I mean, you know, this is where the fears of, of fascism that people discuss. I, I don't even necessarily uh, you know, I think it's been happening in the United States since the the entire post-World War II era, but it seems to be building to into a head now. And we've seen it, you know, all the way since really probably post-Civil War. And then that's when the Pinkertons kind of got started in the in 18, I guess it was 1890s, 1900, really. But we've seen uh, a long history of this kind of thing. Can you, will you discuss that just for, for a second? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the most knowledgeable person about the Pinkertons, but certainly like on a general level, I, I know that they were in a way a precursor to the FBI. Uh, a lot of the personnel that formed the early Bureau of Investigation in, in you know, 1913 or whatever it was, uh, came from the Pinkertons and they were sort of a mercenary uh, detective and security corporation. On, that worked on behalf of uh, big business, for example, trying to squelch labor unrest in the coal fields of West Virginia, um, you know, in places like that. I think, you know, so it, it is very similar um, on a general level. Tiger Swan, you know, they sort of just, um, they operated above the law in so many ways. Um, and, operate in a, in a manner that, you know, really did, re, you know, resembles my understanding of how the Pinkertons operated because you'd basically have these mercenaries for hire whose, whose function was to, by any means necessary, repress a political movement that was challenging corporate power. Right. Um, so these guys had no, no standards that I'm aware of they're operating under, at least with the FBI or, or police. There are technically, uh, guidelines legal guidelines that they operate under um they are technically accountable to the taxpaying public to governing bodies um you know and one of the things that we found in researching these stories is that there are these gaping legal loopholes uh where there's very little accountability for corporations like this you know one interesting thing which i'm not sure if you would be aware of at this point because it's sort of gotten marginal media coverage so far um but we're focusing on it in the next installment of our series, is that uh, actually Tiger Swan, you know, I, I think, honestly, as a result of our stories, now faces a, uh, a civil and criminal complaint by the North Dakota Private Security Investigative Board. Uh, they've had misdemeanor charges filed against them for oh, operating wow. without a license using, you know, using the documents we published as exhibits in this, in this complaint. So, you know, but, you know, the interesting thing I think there is that this is a misdemeanor Class B charge right. that has, you know, carries a maximum you know, sentence for the founder of Tiger Swan of one month in prison, um, which, you know, it's very unlikely that he'll do any jail time for this. Um, you know, I would guess that there might be a fine or perhaps a restraining order that prevents them from 
legally operate in North Dakota. Um, but, it, it, you know, contrast that with over 700 people facing criminal charges for opposing the pipeline, some of whom face you know, potentially decades in prison. So wow. I, think, I think that that's, you know, while there is a little bit of accountability now uh, for Tiger Swan, um, it does. It is a pretty powerful indictment, I think, of our legal system that they, at worst, you know, face a month in prison. You know, their founder does. Um, while the people that were targeted by this police operation, many of whom, I, you know, they have very Trump. Their charges are completely trumped up. I'm sure yeah, that's me being a non-objective journalist saying that. You know, <laughs> um, they uh, they face years in prison potentially. So. Um, it's uh, obviously in certain ways we have not come very far since since the Pinkerton days. Sure. I mean, I think that this is the key, right? I mean, these companies can hire these private security agencies. And like you're saying, they basically can operate w- with impunity. They're, they, have bas- they have laws that protect them as private corporations, whereas the police actually are restrained in what they do because, you know, theoretically you're, the, the public is watching them. Um, they have accountability to, to, you know, and the sheriffs usually get elected. So it's like ultimately to the people. You can't, they can't just do whatever they want. Um, one of the things you were saying in the article was that every time Tiger Swan showed up, they would start to advocate to local law enforcement to start using harsher and harsher methods. Like, oh, you guys right. are, are being too soft on these protesters. You need to be harder, you know, more hardcore. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of the documents that we got that were leaked talk about um, there's basically an assessment of how well Iowa county sheriffs are doing safeguarding the interests of of Tiger, you know, of, of Energy Transfer Partners, the company building the pipeline, and they they talk about three different sheriffs, county sheriffs. Uh, offices in Iowa that they want to try to get to use harsher tactics. Uh, they also comment on the use of bail uh, to increase penalties on protesters and how that was a positive sign and and was likely to dissuade people. Right. Um, so, you know, they talk about meeting with Senator uh, Joni Ernst's husband, I believe I'm saying that name correctly, uh, in Iowa. Uh, to try to use that office's political influence to crack down on protesters. So that was part of their job. Uh, part of their job was to pressure law enforcement uh, to be harsher. Um, and, you know, uh, part you know part of the story there, too, is their ability, I think, to use psychological operations. Um, everything that we've gotten from Tiger Swan that was shared with police harps on the presence of weapons in camps, uh, the potential violence of people uh, at, at the Standing Rock camps. One document I got from September 29th is an email from a Tiger Swan, uh, someone involved with the Tiger Swan operation, to law enforcement warning of protesters inflicting violence on workers. Um which they claimed was information that they've gotten from an infiltrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they asked that that information be passed on to the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, which it seems like it was. So, you know, you have you know, this, this stunning ability for this, of this contractor to push out information uh, to law enforcement agencies that inevitably every time portrays the protesters in the most menacing light possible. You know, and so if you're a police officer working this beat and you're reading this material from these guys who have experience waging the war on terrorism overseas and sort of have that military cachet, um, you know, inevitably, if it were me, um, I might start to think differently about these people and start thinking about them, uh, you know, in terms of their potential to inflict violence and, you know, maybe believe some of these claims about how they have weapons and are going to attack security workers and attack police. You know, so inevitably that affected the response uh, to, sure. to the water protectors. Yeah. yeah and, and as you mentioned, in some cases, then they actually had what they called trusted agents that would infiltrate 
uh, the situation right. and try to stir up problems. And uh, there have been some reports. I read a report today, I think, that may have been spawned by by your reporting in The Intercept that was talking about um, an incident where some cars were, were lit on fire and they were discussing that maybe it was the guys from Tiger Swan. I mean, you don't, you know, are, are these like the guy that you were talking about that busted into camp with this weapon? Um are they planting are they becoming agent provocateurs are are they planting uh you know or or creating a situation where violence uh is going to become an issue when it wouldn't before um and maybe if you can talk to this but then also talk to you know obviously this was a nonviolent action another thing that you mentioned in the article was that they had these agents in there searching for intelligence, and the worst thing they found was a pile of Earth First magazines, <laughs> which was – I thought that was kind of classic, especially uh, being from Mendocino where Earth First was so active in the 90s. Um, right. and, and so much of the emphasis, of course, is on nonviolent you know, action and how do we, you know, how do we protest politically in this nonviolent fashion. And I assume that there at Standing Rock, this was – uh, the goal and that there were they were training t- to you know um, to act in these nonviolent ways when then we find out perhaps that there were these agent provocateurs sent in by Tiger Swan uh, that may have actually been ratcheting up the situation and trying to promote violence in, in a sense creating the very situation that then they were using these psychological operations to to try to you know, say that this is what was going on when, in fact, they they were you know the the, the protesters are acting as nonviolently as possible. Right. Well, I think there's a couple issues there. One is that, as as you're saying, uh, for the most part, yeah, uh, people were committed to nonviolence. Um, you know, so <laughs> just you know, some of the ridiculous things like finding Earth first magazine treating that as a threat uh does you know it characterizes just how inflated the estimate that you know tiger swan is giving of of the violent threat that these people pose uh you know it's telling that uh in february there was this massive police operation to close the camps once and for all uh you know some of the people who are tuning into this will probably remember you know, images of of uh military style police raids happening uh driving camp you know the the last campers out uh the atf um you know bureau of alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives did a a thorough uh inspection of the camps afterward found no weapons at all um wow and uh you know that tells you a lot uh about how credible these claims were um at the same time you know there were people on the water protector side who got rowdy at times and you know jill stein for crying out loud spray painted some machinery during her presidential <laughs> campaign um and got charged for that by the state's attorneys um yeah. for vandalizing equipment you know so those sorts of things happen too but to equate that with uh, a terroristic threat to the national security of the united states yeah, just because someone lights a barricade on fire, or somebody throws rocks at the police, or somebody you know does does something to vandalize equipment, you know, to, it's just it's absurd to to make the leap to say that these people are now uh, a jihadist insurgency that that threatens the national security of the country. Right. Um, you know, there's been, I think, steadily. Um, in recent years, a, a move to sort of fuse the uh, national security apparatus of the United States with um, private interests through this discourse of, of critical infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, since 9-11, there's been all these task forces and councils and things like that where FBI and Department of Homeland Security people uh, are sharing information with oil companies and other you know people who run so-called critical infrastructure uh which right. the term critical infrastructure refers to installations that are basically important to the economy of the united states and even pipelines that haven't even been constructed yet are being defined as critical infrastructure that is nece- you know that is that is essential to the national security of the united states uh so there's you know, there's all these mechanisms 
that have formalized that um, way of dealing with protests mm-hmm. that I think is part of the backdrop for this. And, and uh, you know, for example, the Keystone XL pipeline, um, not as dramatic of a situation, not as big of a, of a police response, but uh, that, uh, you know, other journalists reported that the FBI had labeled the Keystone XL pipeline critical to the national security of the United States. And that's a direct quote. Uh, and, you know, the Obama administration was still reviewing the permits for the thing. Right. Um, so, you know, these, these kind of operations are, you know, I, I think my point there is that while this happened at Standing Rock, it didn't happen in isolation. And I think, you know, the reason Tiger Swan, for example, is able to participate so heavily in these operations and has an opening for promoting protesters being terrorists is that that's a more broad trend um, that powerful institutions like the FBI and others are are supporting at this point. Well, I mean, that was as I was reading uh, the articles, one of the things that stood out um, was that you discuss. Well, one thing you discussed along these lines is that the use of the they're actually called fusion centers started in in 2007, Mm -hmm. where uh, all the different law enforcement agencies kind of work together. And I guess Tiger Swan was working with these fusion centers now against the against the protests, but also. Another thing that that kind of struck me was bringing in the anti-terrorism task force. I mean, I can only imagine if I was acting as a a water protector involved in a nonviolent action and suddenly the federal government is calling me a terrorist. I mean, that that amps things up a little bit. (laughs) You know, that's when you're talking about these. Well, I mean, you get called a terrorist and then they throw you in jail for the rest of your life. It's not just you know, you were involved in a, in a nonviolent action and you get, you know, whatever, uh, you know, maybe six months or a year or some kind of fine or something like that at the worst case scenario. I mean, so it, it really does when the government and the corporations are working together and they're amping it up to calling you, you know, jihadists, insurgents, terrorists, um, it's starting to get out of hand. And when you're just trying to to, you know, it, I mean, we're talking about First Amendment rights, freedom of speech rights, really. Uh, right. I mean, my God. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're talking about protection of water. Um, we're talking about climate change, which threatens everything, really. I mean, the United States does not have a policy to deal with climate change in a syst- systematic way at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a hodgepodge of you know, state laws and regulations that Obama put in place and and things, but it doesn't amount to a, a coherent policy at all to deal with the problem on the scale that's needed. So, you know, as a result, the U.S. is still building massive infrastructure to um, continue to burn petroleum and other fossil fuels. Uh, the COEX pipeline is a major example of that. You know, if, if the United States were... Dealing seriously with climate change, the Dakota Access Pipeline would not have been built. Uh, so I think that that's part right. of the backdrop for me in understanding the stakes of all this. If you, in the absence of a policy to deal with climate change, uh, feel compelled, as a lot of people did, to engage in civil disobedience um, because you're concerned about the fate of future generations and, and you know the diversity of life on Earth. Uh, but then you get called a terrorist for doing that. I mean, that is that's a situation that um, is literally, you know, it's literally uh, antithetical to human existence and, and you know the existence of of the biodiversity of the planet in the future. Um, so, you know, the the stakes are very large with this. Um, I think that in the Trump administration, uh, because it is so you know, explicitly anti-climate change, um, so explicitly anti-social justice and racial justice. So, you know, not going to, not going to address indigenous sovereignty claims, obviously. Um, not that presidents have in the past really either, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's this kind of, you know, the stage is set for, um, these kinds of things to continue. I, I don't think that, uh, people opposed to pipelines are backing down per se. I, you know, I think that this repression has taken a big toll um, on 
on a lot of people, but uh, there's the DAPL movement, you know, the, the movement to stop this pipeline inspired people mm-hmm. in a, an incredible way. There's all kinds of protests against other pipelines happening across the country right now. Uh, if Keystone XL actually starts moving forward, I, I imagine there will be very significant resistance to that. So, you know, we're, we're talking about things here. I think it's just important to underline that didn't happen in isolation. Not, they're not going to go away. Uh, certainly with the Trump administration in office, it's much less likely that they're going to go away than, than if like Hillary Clinton were in office or something. Um, you know, in a sense, you know, probably a lot of other really horrible things were, would be happening if Hillary Clinton was, was in office. But, uh, you know, yeah. Trump, with his level of unpopularity and his virulence anti-climate rhetoric and people realizing what it means if the United States does not deal with climate change, um, combined with just how inspired and active uh, indigenous people are uh, who are opposing these sorts of projects means that um, these sorts of protests are going to continue and the sort of security response we've seen in some form will will inevitably meet them again until the issue is is addressed meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, you do talk about this uh, in, in the third and fourth part of the series so far. Um, I've got a couple of quotes here where uh, in the Tiger Swan documentation after, I guess it was February 22nd, when they went in and they cleared the camp, they were still looking for work. You know, they didn't want to be done. Right. <laughs> so they they were starting to talk about things like the anti-dappled diaspora. And, yeah. and I have another one that's great, the dispersion of insurgency. And they had and they were going back to Iraq again and being like, well, we know when we break these insurgencies up. Then they just go back, you know, into their homes, but they're still around and, and they're going to reform somewhere else. So we have to be on top of this. Um, and they're still on the payroll, I guess, of, of uh, energy transfer partners. And they're working on these other pipelines. You talk about the Mariner East pipeline um, and, and the Atlantic Sunrise pipeline. And I think there's uh, another pipeline that may be starting in New Orleans now. Where Tiger Swan right. is already on the ground running security. So they're definitely looking to the future to, to have um, this be kind of, you know, the standard operation. Right. Um, I mean, I think that Tiger Swan considers what they did a success. Um, I think Energy Transfer Partners probably views Tiger work as fairly successful, mm-hmm. um, obviously, if they're still on the payroll. That's the conclusion that is kind of obvious. So uh, at least Energy Transfer Partners, which is one of the largest uh, oil and gas corporations in the United States, and a, you know it's a Fortune 100 company, mm-hmm. um, sees the work of this private mercenary corporation as a success. So um, they seem devoted to this sort of operation continuing if they are met with the same kind of resistance. And I you know, as you say, um, they are on the ground to some degree doing some things. Hard to say exactly what uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, they're at least doing the same sort of counter information style campaign. Right. To some extent in Louisiana, where the Bayou Bridge Pipeline is being built, that pipeline would take um, some of the oil from the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and pipe it over to the the gulf coast um you know the big export facilities and refineries there Mm -hmm. in louisiana texas so you know that's a big project uh and so it's not surprising to see tiger swan you know involved to some degree there um yeah i mean it's uh it's something that i think is on the radar more now um and I think that both for oil companies looking at what worked and didn't work with the with the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, they're probably going to look at some of the things that happened. And I would imagine that uh, certainly the counter information part of it and and that sort of thing, it's it's sort of standard operating procedure. I, I would venture to say for a lot of companies already. But uh, if you start seeing, you know, private mercenary guys who are toting semi-automatic weapons and acting really aggressively at your pipeline protest, you know, that's uh, probably a pretty good indication that 
that uh, the oil company that is involved there looked at the t- the coax pipeline operation and decided that it worked well to you know to have this company Tiger Swan repress pipeline protesters and yeah so that is something for us to be looking out for I think you know going into the future more and more. Well, and this whole, I know uh, there was also, you wrote a little bit about not just these um, controlling the narrative, this kind of psychological operation that the corporations are still, organizations like Tiger Tiger Swan are going to be doing in communities where pipelines are coming, but also um, these, um, these, these trusted agents or these infiltrators coming in, even to community meetings uh, about stuff like this yeah. and, and having their presence... Uh, kind of secretly, covertly involved there so that they're constantly gathering intelligence on Americans, you know, in American communities who are just want to, you know, have some say over what's going on in terms of the environment in their backyard where these pipelines are coming in. And there was one example where you were talking about like the pipelines going through and uh, they, they went to the judge and the judge allowed them to arrest people on their own property uh, if the pipeline was going through their property for trespassing on the easement, right? Um, and so maybe uh, we've got—we're almost running into an hour, um, so we're getting towards the end. Um, but there also seems to be a spate of anti-protest laws that are getting passed state by state all across the country. It seems like this corporate response, probably to the No Dapple protests and others, the Keystone XL protests where they're just going to start making it harder and harder and harder with harsher and harsher pe- penalties to to protest uh, even these nonviolent protests anywhere in the country. Yeah, uh, starting in North Dakota, uh, there have been very similar laws passed in, in numerous states now. Um, in North Dakota, the passed law, a law that uh, makes it legal to run over a protester accidentally, uh, quote unquote, um, you know, forbids people from wearing masks if they're gathered in groups of a certain size and, you know, things that are just really clearly targeted at, you know, harsher criminalization of the kind of opposition to that happened with the Dakota access pipeline and similar bills in, you know, Oklahoma have passed, um, They've been introduced in a lot of other states. I, I don't actually know offhand where else they've actually been established and passed. But, yeah, it, it's also something that converges with the anti-Trump resistance, uh, where more and more often large crowds of people are going and doing rowdy things and protesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a variety of factors. But, yeah, the overall effect is that there is this wave of anti-protest legislation happening uh, across the country and, uh, you know, especially in the Midwest and, and some parts of the East and, and Southeast. So it's something to pay a lot of attention to. Um, you know, what I, you know, what I've observed with reporting on the Dakota access pipeline is that I think police felt frustrated with the, the tools at their disposal for prosecuting people for some of the things that they wanted to prosecute people for. So basically mm-hmm. they went out and looked for, for other things that they could criminalize. Uh, and even, even though they didn't really think they had the tools that they needed, they still prosecuted hundreds of people. So, um, you know, things have already, were already hard, you know, for people trying to protest the Coaxes pipeline. And sure. it's a matter of degrees worse with these, with these bills. And so what maybe can people do? I, I think it, one of the things I wanted to mention almost our conversations kind of come full circle. I mean, one of the things people can do is watch out for corporate propaganda on the Internet, you know, <laughs> like be more discerning with yeah. your news because, um, you know, these corporations and uh, private contractors like Tiger Swan who have these psychological operations skills are going to be trying to control the narrative uh, make the protesters seem as violent as possible and, and make the corporations out to be doing this great work for the people, even uh, as they're uh, I- annihilating the environment or uh, ignoring, you know, individual rights or in the case of uh, of the Standing Rock, the tribal rights. Um, so being more discerning about, about the news uh, is something that people can do. Is there anything else? Uh, you know, how do you stay informed about what's going on with Standing Rock? I know... I mean, you can follow some of your work and, and some of your more recent articles in terms of 
where these prosecutions are going? Um, are there people that can be contacted? Are there organizations if somebody wants to help? Um, mm-hmm. You know, where can people go to find out yeah. more? Yeah, I, th- I think that it's in a way a second phase of the struggle against the pipeline that's that now is focused on making sure people don't end up locked in prison for a long time who have been key activists in, in this struggle. Uh, you know, the Water Protector Legal Collective is a very good organization that's doing good work. Um, they have a website that people can find pretty readily. Uh, there, you know, there's other organizations like that. The National Lawyers Guild is, is a part of uh, defending protesters. You know, I, I think that the main thing to keep in mind is that um, the prosecutions can create a major chilling effect on dissent in the U.S. If, if people see that the possible penalty is to get locked in prison for, for years and years. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, that's one aspect of it. But also, you know, these, I think there's a very good tradition in the United States in, in many areas of supporting political prisoners. And, and um, you know, just because someone is facing legal charges or in prison, uh, they're still part of a movement. And uh, I think a movement has a responsibility to, to see things that way and make sure that that person remains a part of the movement through continuing to give that person support, being in touch with them through writing letters or sending them books or whatever it may be. Um, you know, that's one other thing I would say people could do sort of on a, on a personal level, um, you know, find out who these people are, find out what they're accused of, develop your own understanding of their situation and maybe consider writing them letters or something like that. Um, you know, on a broader level, <clears throat> Like you say, um, you know, being discerning uh, when you consume news and information is very important. Um, but also, just I think that it's important to take a step back and realize that as we're talking about all this harsh repression against water protectors at Standing Rock, um, the movement itself it has been incredibly successful in in a lot of ways and you know one product of that is all the other pipeline protests happening across the country so if you're someone who is inspired by this movement or is a part of this movement um, my my main advice to you personally would be you know look to look to ways that you can continue to take the, the spirit of what happened at stain rock and apply it to, to other things that you can be involved in whether that's you know maybe another pipeline type of situation or just, you know, working for social justice or working to protect the environment where you live because, you know, the, the kinds of things that played out at Standing Rock fundamentally are not unique to Standing Rock. You know, these sorts of things, whether it's uh, threats to water, whether it's, uh, you know, threats to race, you know, racial justice issues, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. there's, a you know, the the thing about there being so many problems in the world is that there's a lot of great work to do right. and, you know, coming together, you know, in talking to people who are at Stain Rock, who were a big part of the resistance there, their lives are changed in a really amazing way. You know, a lot of people talk about this being the first time that they felt a sense of real community, real love, you know, deep bonds of solidarity with, with fellow human beings that they'd never felt before. Uh, you know, people are hungry for that, and sure. that's one of the things about engaging in these sorts of, of movements that that uh, that people get, you know, as as a need that they're that is fulfilled so often. So, you know, I just want to sort of throw on that happy note. Um, while you know there is a lot of repression and the stuff involving Tiger Swan is daunting and you know, sort of intimidating for a lot of people, it's um, it's also the case that there's this, you know, this happy side to the overall story, uh, if you sort of zoom out on it. One of the themes that I have heard about uh, from people that I know that went there to Sanding Rock, they were just talking about how, uh, like, a, the overall theme of healing. I mean, if there was a spiritual a component to all of this, you know, the concept of, of becoming decolonized but healing yourself on this kind of deeper level so you have the strength to be able to stand up um, to, you know, to some of these 
just really to anybody that's trying to push you around, right? It could be a big corporation or it could be, you know, you, uh, the guy down the street that's a bully. But <laughs> but there is like this yeah. healing component to it that I um, I really appreciate it. And I hope that that is the kind of thing that, that comes out of all of this that more and more people start to wake up to and understand. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Justin, we've got maybe the last couple of minutes here. You can uh, say whatever closing statements you'd like to say and um, just give some uh, information, more information about the work that you're continuing to do. And uh, if you want people to go, maybe some contact information or a website where people can go and find out more. Yeah, my computer is actually about to die, so I should probably just uh, just say, Perfect. you know, if you want to stay stay abreast of my work, um, I have a website, willparishreports.com. I'm also on Twitter at willparishca. It's an abbreviation for California, obviously, for anyone who, you know, may happen to be reading into that more than they need to. So, you know, I'm, you can follow my work there. Uh, we're going to be coming out with more stories of Intercept. I encourage people to go to intercept.com to check them out. And really appreciate you having me on, Doug, and appreciate your work. I'm an old-time listener of KZYX. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's an honor to to be talking to you on your on your podcast, and I wish you the best with it. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and helping me out as well. This is only the second episode, so I'm trying to get this thing off the ground. And having said that, anyone who uh, likes what they're hearing can check out the shift. Uh, my Patreon page would be great. Just asking for a couple bucks a month to help me keep this going at patreon.com backslash the shift. Or you can reach me on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty or Twitter at D McKenty. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks a lot, Will. Keep up the great work. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Doug. You bet. Take care. Okay, you too.